You can turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm, Psalm chapter 22. If you're new to the Bible, this is a safe place to learn how to read it. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there are, there are copies in the lobby. Feel free to make your way there now to grab one. You can also just type in Psalm 22 ESV on your mobile device and follow along that way. Uh, this morning we, we hit pause on our series through the book of Acts. I'm sure you're a little disappointed. We've all enjoyed going through the book of Acts so much, but we're pressing pause for a number of weeks to spend some time with the Psalms. We do this, uh, we've been doing this the last few summers actually, we do this because the Psalms have a unique place in our Bibles and a, and a unique place in our spiritual lives as Christians. The Psalms teach us how to process our various experiences and emotions in light of the great truths of God. The joys and sorrows, triumphs and tragedies, pleasures and pains, all normal features of life. You you are undoubtedly experiencing a mixture of those things this morning. So the question is, how should we process these different circumstances and feelings in a way that brings both glory to God and strength to our faith? Well, the Psalms teach us how. And Psalm 22, which I'm about to read, takes us into both the experiences and the emotions of Jesus Christ himself. Though written hundreds of years before he was born, these 31 verses bear a striking resemblance to the end of his life on earth. Commentators have referred to Psalm 22 as the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. And later biblical authors would use this chapter to interpret his sufferings and death. The very first words of this psalm are the words that Jesus spoke from the cross at the apex of his agony. So Psalm 22 is holy ground, for in this psalm, Jesus Christ opens up to us his very heart. This is what he felt as he suffered and died for our sins. And as I was selecting a first psalm to preach to you, I could think of no better place to start studying than at the psalm that takes us right to the foot of the cross. So follow along with me as I read all of Psalm 22, 31 verses, and then I'll pray. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, verse 1. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. 
Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding? Lord, I, I ask now that you would fill me with your spirit as I preach your word to my friends. And I pray that you would fill my friends with your spirit as they listen to your word. That we might all taste and see that you are good 
even as we remember the darkest day in history, which turns out to be for us our great salvation. Help us to know the heart of our Savior for us through this passage this morning, for there is no more urgent need that we have than to know Jesus and to know his heart for us. So we ask you to reveal it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever experienced a disconnect between your feelings and the facts? A disconnect between your feelings and the facts. Let me give you an obvious example. When you cry at a movie, okay? An emotional reaction to a fictional event. It doesn't actually make any sense to cry at a movie, but everyone does it, unless you're a sociopath or something, unless there's something wrong with you. I'm sure you have your list of movie moments that make you cry. The end of Old Yeller, right? Bambi's mom, Jack from Titanic, there was room, right? Bubba Blue from Forrest Gump, oof. Tony Stark in the Avengers for a recent one. Ellie from the animated movie Up, oh my goodness. Every main character in Rogue One, a Star Wars film, sorry if I just ruined that for you. <laughs> Boromir in Lord of the Rings, oh if you don't cry at those, something's wrong with you. But let's be honest, it's strange to cry at movies. <laughs> The fact is that what's happening isn't real, even though the grief I feel certainly is. Or what about the opposite? What about when we should feel something, but we don't? When a friend honestly pours out their heart, and they're, they're crying, they're upset, but you don't know what to do, and you feel strangely detached from them and their pain. In that moment, we sense the disconnect between our feelings and the facts of that person's heartache. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once asked his congregation to consider if there was a disconnect between their feelings and the facts of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. In a sermon, he asked them the following on-the-nose questions. He asked them this, Is it nothing to some of you that Jesus should die? You hear the tale of Calvary, but alas, you have dry eyes. You never weep concerning it. Is the death of Jesus nothing to you? Alas, it seems to be so with many. Now, I don't think I would be quite so confrontational. A bit more sympathetic but he's identified something that we should all be aware of. That we can lose the wonder of the cross. Our hearts can grow cold and indifferent toward the familiar story of Jesus' death. Oh, they shouldn't, of course. The cross is the apex of the glory of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the plan of God. The most important thing that ever happened that absolutely changed our lives occurred at Calvary. That's a fact. But there are times 
when our feelings are unaffected by that fact. However, the Lord is not indifferent to our indifference. He is committed to nurturing our passion for the gospel. How do I know that? Because he put Psalm 22 in our Bibles. He invites us as we struggle to feel passion for the gospel. He invites us to walk closely with him, first through his deepest agony, and then into his greatest joy. He invites us to study the cross. Study the cross. Oh, it's not a one-time study. You don't take it as an elective in college and then leave it behind. This is an eternity-long endeavor to study the cross. Spurgeon, again, speaking to his church, said, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified. If you could use soul expansion this morning, if there is a disconnect between your feelings and the facts of Christ's self-sacrificial love for you, then study the science of Christ and him crucified. This psalm is perfect for just that study. I'm going to organize our time in Psalm 22 around the final experiences of Jesus on earth. I'm going to do that under four headings. We're not going to go through this passage in order or line by line. We're going to skip around a little bit. I will give you the points as we go, but I'm giving you these points in the first person from the perspective of Jesus because I want all of us to sense that this is him sharing his very heart with us. This is him opening his heart to us. Let's study it together. Point number one. Point number one. I was despised. I was despised. The Psalms original author may have been King David, as it says in the, uh, in the opening notes. It could have been another psalmist that its title is a psalm of David doesn't necessarily mean he authored it. It could have belonged to one of his collections. There's no recorded event in David's life that mirrors this psalm perfectly. But regardless of who wrote it, it's in our Bibles. It's God's word. That's what matters. Whoever the author was, what we do know is that he was in a horrible situation. We'll return to the opening verses later on, but skip down to verse 6. Listen to his self-description. I am a worm and not a man. A worm and not a man. In the verses right before, he's speaking of God's faithfulness to past generations as a way to nurture his hope. He already feels like he's alone and abandoned and surrounded, but he's trying to nurture his hope by remembering what God did For people in the past. The only problem is he doesn't feel like a person. Those people who received God's deliverance were men, but he's a worm. Is he deserving of that same kind of deliverance? He's not sure. What makes him feel that way? Why does he feel like a worm? The treatment he's receiving at the hands of other men. Second half of verse 6. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. Notice the two different people groups he mentions here. Mankind as a whole and the people. In other words, God's people. He's hated by those outside of Israel. He's hated by those inside of Israel. Jews and Gentiles are against this man. He's got no friends on the planet. 
okay? That's the point. No friends on the planet. Nobody is singing the famous song from Toy Story to him, You've Got a Friend in Me. He's got nobody singing that song to him. No friends. He feels the sting of their rejection. Verse 7, all who see me, the pervasiveness of that statement, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. All idioms for making jokes, sticking out their tongues at him, making jokes about him, taunting him. And their mockery reaches a crescendo in verse 8. They aren't just mocking his appearance or his predicament. They're mocking his faith. Verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him. For the Lord delights in him. Mocking a man's faith mocking the most important things about him. Now, it's bad enough (laughs) that these insults are leveled at a faithful Old Testament Israelite, potentially even the king of Israel. This is the treatment he's receiving. But if these descriptions are true and an accurate reflection of the treatment that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, received, then they take on a whole new meaning. A whole new kind of disturbing. And it is so striking how close these words are to describing the very treatment of Jesus. This is how we, mankind, treated the Savior who came to us. Here it is, straight from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Sounds just like these verses. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Those men weren't trying to quote Psalm 22 when they said that, but they did. Who would mock the faith of the Son of God? I mean, he's the one who knows God perfectly. Think about how wrong this is. He's the one who knows God perfectly. He's the one who embodies truth. He's the one who existed before the world began. He's the one who knows God like none other. The one who should be eternally trusted and believed and adored and followed. That's who he is. And they made fun of him for trusting in God. I wonder if we think that Jesus was impervious to the spitting and the mockery and the lies and the mischaracterizations. I think in default, we kind of assume that Jesus must have been this kind of stoic and unaffected character. But if Psalm 22 reflects the heart of Jesus during his suffering, then that can't be true. The psalmist was deeply affected by these insults, dismayed by them. And Jesus was too. It broke his 
heart that the people he created to reflect God's glory had fallen so far from grace. That they turned their backs on the one who made them and had come to heal them and save them. He was not impervious to the pain of being rejected by the people he loved. He felt that pain with full force. Oh, he wasn't surprised by it not surprised by it. He had already committed himself to endure it. He knew what it would accomplish if he endured it. But that doesn't mean it didn't hurt him deeply. And one thing that means for us is that he isn't unsympathetic to the emotional pain that you feel at the hands of others. To be a mature Christian isn't to be a robot, (laughs) somehow unaffected by the mistreatment of others. And the comfort for us here is that Jesus knows what that feels like too. He knows what that feels like too. He knows the sting, and, and he has drawn so close to those who trust him that he feels our pains as well when we suffer the sting of mistreatment. The Bible records him as one who draws near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit precisely because he knows how that feels. He knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows what it's like to be made fun of, insulted. And he is not unsympathetic or detached when you feel those things as well. He walks alongside you as you do. He has been despised by men. Point number two. He was despised. Point number two. I was tortured. I was tortured. One of the unique features of this psalm is that it comes from the vantage point of someone who's in the middle of an execution. And there are no other psalms like that. I mean, let's just, let me walk you through it. The, the, the author's description, beginning in verse 14. Look there with me. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. In other words, I feel empty inside. I've got nothing left. Emotionally, physically. And all my bones, he writes, are out of joint. The, the image is like being pulled apart. That's, that's the imagery. He's being pulled apart, like, like someone taking a loaf of bread and slowly breaking it in two. He's being stretched out and pulled apart. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is just a broken pottery fragment sitting on the ground, in the sand, in the desert. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. In other words, utterly physically exhausted, broken, dehydrated. You, now speaking to God, he writes, you lay me in the dust of death. In other words, he feels that God is putting him in the grave already. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me surrounded by vicious animals. And he uses a number, of, a number of different images. Dogs, wild oxen, lions, bulls. 
they encompass me. They've encircled me. A company of evildoers. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, that final image, piercing of the hands and feet, is literally like a lion. They are at my hands and feet. The images of a, a lion biting into its prey. Now, the enemies are no longer simply mocking, shaming, and embarrassing their poor prisoner. They've surrounded him, like verse 12 and 16 say, and now they have drawn in so close that they are physically torturing him. The original author, of course, didn't clearly envision the cross of Christ when he wrote that his enemies were like lions sinking their teeth into his hands and feet. But we can rest assured that the Lord intended for us to read these lines and think of the cross, to see the connection. Jesus' enemies did more than just mock him and embarrass him. They did more than make him feel threatened and isolated and ashamed, which they did. They did more than that, though. They tortured him. They tortured him physically. He felt every crack of the whip. He ached. His muscles ached under the weight of the wooden cross. He winced and cried out at each hammer strike of the nails. His lungs burned as he slowly suffocated on the cross. Look, Jesus' nervous system worked perfectly. He made sure that it did. He was the one ensuring that his perpetrators could do what they were doing to him. And that his body worked. He held everything together. He was not immune to the physical pain. He had taken on a body just like ours. That's why the incarnation is so important. He had taken on a body just like ours. He felt everything we would have felt if we had been in his place, experiencing the torture he received. Every lightning bolt of pain surging through his nerves, into his brain, alerting him that something had gone terribly wrong. And do you know what Jesus did about it? Do you know what he did about that pain? Nothing. He didn't do anything about it. Every fiber of his body would have been yelling at him to make it stop. That's what pain is for. He designed pain to be that way. Pain warns us that something is wrong. He had all the warning signs, but he did nothing about it. He didn't dull it. He didn't avoid it. He didn't end it. He endured it. Why? Because he loved us. Jesus pinned himself to that cross. Nobody made him do it. The perfect spotless lamb died in our place because he knew what would happen to us if he didn't. He knew better than we ever will of the perfect holiness of God. He knew better than we do of the absolute unholiness of us. And he knew what God's justice required on account of that situation, that we should suffer eternally for our sins. A fate worse than the physical challenges of the cross. And so, for the sake of love, he turned himself over to a horribly painful, torturous death at the hands of wicked men. 
And therefore, we can't, we cannot look long at the cross without walking away with a sense of his love for us. It's why we must return here over and over again. We may have many questions for Jesus, and rightly so, but we should not question whether or not he loves us. For the wounds prove the love. Wounds he did not have to bear, but he did. Oh, ask him your questions. Ask him your questions. But do not question his love for you. That question has been answered. The physical pain of Jesus was, for most of us, especially comfortable Americans, an unbelievable thought. We have never suffered physically like that. But it would be a mistake to think that the physical pain he endured was the worst of his suffering. It is not. Point number three. I was abandoned. He was despised. He was tortured now. He was abandoned. The psalmist doesn't appear to have any friends around in the first 21 verses of the psalm. And there's a point where that changes. But in the first 21 verses of the psalm, in the middle of the heat of his affliction, he has no friends. And that would have been true for Jesus as well. All but a few of his friends had deserted him by the time he was marching toward Calvary and hanging upon the cross. But there is something worse than having no friends, okay? There's something worse than having no friends. Feeling that you have no God. A real feeling of atheism. (laughs) To believe in God, but to feel that he has completely forgotten you. The combination of the physical and emotional pain that our psalmist is enduring has led him to that very feeling. Now, to the beginning of the psalm, verse 1. The famous words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Departed from me? Left me here alone? This will later be called the cry of dereliction, which just means abandonment. A cry of abandonment. Why have you left me here? Psalm 22 opens with those words. They're the first words, but they're really the apex of everything that he suffers in this chapter. He kind of begins, he begins in a way at the end of his suffering. Bad enough that he's surrounded by enemies. Bad enough that they're mocking him and torturing him. But worst of all, these circumstances make it seem as though God has thrown him to the wolves and left him for dead. That God has turned his back on him. That he is abandoned, forsaken by God. Now, that isn't true. For the psalmist. It is not true for the psalmist. It represents a disconnect between his feelings and the facts. God had not forgotten him. God would deliver him as we catch at the end of the psalm. But, but for Jesus, when he yells those words from the cross, he is expressing a loneliness that we can't even imagine. 
For Jesus did not imagine that he had been forsaken by God. He really was. It's a mystery. Is there a division between the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, together forever? Somehow one of them got cut off? No, they hold together. But Jesus' feelings of abandonment aren't just feelings. Something more. And I turn again to Charles Spurgeon to explain this moment. Here's how he said it. At this moment, physical weakness brought upon him by fasting and scourging was united with the acute mental torture which he endured from the shame and ignominy through which he had to pass. And as the culmination of his grief, he suffered spiritual agony, which surpasses all expression on account of the departure of his father from him. This was, he says, the blackness and darkness of his horror. Then it was that he penetrated the depths of the caverns of suffering. You know, everything else that Jesus experienced, everything else that he suffered, you and I could experience. Insults, hardships, pain, hunger, poor treatment, injustice, imprisonment, torture, even physical death. We could experience all of those things, but we can't truly understand the suffering he experienced when his father, who had only ever loved him for eternity, treated him like his enemy. It was, in no uncertain terms, hell. That's the word to describe it. It was hell, an eternity of God's righteous wrath poured out on one man in just a few hours. The only way for us to know what Jesus experienced when he made that cry from the cross would be to be in hell, experiencing the wrath of God against us for our sins. But we will never be able to experience that because he experienced it for us, that we would never have to taste that wrath. We can't even begin to sympathize with him when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our souls will never taste what he tasted in that moment. When the Father stopped answering him, stopped helping him, stopped protecting him. He was utterly alone. And because he was, we never will be. That's the gospel. He gets what we deserve. Hell. We get what he deserves. Heaven. Oh, at times, we may feel that God has abandoned us. We may even say, like the psalmist did, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not wrong to say that. But it's never actually true. Not like it was for Jesus. 
it represents a disconnect between our feelings and the facts. He never forsakes us. We know that because he forsook his son on the cross instead of us. Now, if you are not a Christian, you are in danger of this wrath. In fact, right now, according to Jesus' own words, you sit condemned. And if you die without trusting in Jesus as the final sacrifice for your sins, you will face this terrible wrath, and it is a fate so awful, I can't adequately describe it. And the reason you aren't experiencing it right this moment is because God is patiently offering you the chance to be saved. The chance to be saved. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you deserve this wrath. And then embrace Jesus as the one who bears it for you. The one who died that you might live. The one who was cut off that you might be brought in. Oh, trust in him today, please, for you do not know what tomorrow holds. The story of the cross doesn't actually end at the cross. Fourth and final point, briefly. Point number four. I, I was raised. I was raised. Beginning in verse 22, the psalmist has a vision. He envisions himself on the other side of his deliverance. God has heard his cries, God has intervened, and he now lives to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He was surrounded by enemies. Oh, now the people surrounding him are of a very different sort. He goes on as, as a worship leader, urging his brothers to praise God and stand in awe of him. He pictures a growing crowd of people joining him in worship. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, is how he describes it in verse 27. The community of people rescued by God grows larger and larger and larger until the whole earth is filled with them. Oh, throughout Psalm 22, our author appeared, oh, he appeared at many points to be as good as dead, but now, look, he lives. He lives. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, the author of Hebrews quotes verse 22 and interprets it as the very words of Jesus. He says, this is Jesus speaking in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And he says, Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. And he, in fact, is our great worship leader standing among us. And leading us in songs of redemption. If Jesus had only died, his work would not have been complete. Jesus was as good as dead, certainly, but now he lives. Death did not defeat him, he defeated death. And the proof, 
The proof that he defeated death is that he has delivered people from death. There is now, according to this psalm and the rest of our Bibles, we're seeing it in Acts, actually. There is now a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-generational group of people who celebrate what God has done in delivering them from their greatest enemies. And that, your lives, and the lives of everybody who has believed in Jesus, are the reward of his suffering and the proof of its effectiveness. Your lives prove that Jesus' death was not in vain. Look at the last two verses of Psalm 22, verses 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness, which righteousness is just another word for deliverance. They shall proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. And I was very helped by one commentator who pointed out that the phrase, he has done it, is awfully close to the final sentence Jesus spoke from the cross. It is finished. He has done it. He has delivered us from the wrath we deserve. He has paid for our sins with his death and his resurrection has proven that his sacrifice was accepted as he now, the, the living one, gives life to his people now and forevermore. Oh, this is Jesus Christ. This is the only true God, the suffering God. The suffering God is the true God. My friends, do you know this God? For you can only know him if you know him as the suffering God, the God of the cross. When this question is posed to J.I. Packer, here's how he answers. Do you know God? The test is this, he writes. The God of the Bible has spoken in his Son. The light of the knowledge of his glory is given to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And so he asks, do I look habitually to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as showing me the final truth about the nature and the grace of God? Do I see all the purposes of God as centering upon him? If I have been enabled to see this, Packer writes, and in mind and heart to go to Calvary and lay hold of the Calvary solution, then I can know that I truly worship the true God and that he is my God and that I am even now enjoying eternal life according to our Lord's own definition when he said, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is life. My friends, if you have laid hold of the Calvary solution, 
and you regularly look to the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you can be sure that you know God. You walk with him, and he walks with you. Packer again writes, when people know God, the suffering God, when people know God, losses and crosses cease to matter to them. What they have gained simply banishes these things from their minds. To gain true knowledge of the suffering God uh, is cause for great celebration and thanksgiving. It puts everything in perspective. And if you wish to know this God, if you don't know that you know him, then we urge you, lay hold of the Calvary solution for here at the cross is the answer to all of your sorrows, pains, and guilt. It's here that you come to know the only true God who suffered for you and now lives that you might live. We want you to know him. I'm going to pray that you would before we sing and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Join me as I pray. Lord, the cross answers our biggest problems. We need to know you. We need to be reconciled to you. We need to be forgiven. We need to be cleansed. We need to be loved. We need something done for us that we can't do for ourselves. And the cross is all of those things to us. Jesus Christ suffering on our behalf and then rising from the grave to give us everlasting life. He himself is the answer. And so I pray today that for those Christians here that feel distant and feel disconnected from you, that they would once again lay a hold of the Calvary solution. And for those who don't yet know you, that for the first time your spirit is awakening new life in them, that they also would lay hold of the Calvary solution and find that it has everything that they most truly and deeply need for life and hope. And Lord, for us as a church, may we continue to be the people who live under the shadow of the cross. For it is there that we find our life and happiness and joy and hope for the future. Oh, make us those people. Preserve our faith and our trust in the Christ of the cross, we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Stand with us.